All right. So here we are, Psych 213, part two of chapter one. I know, it's kind of odd. I'm going to try to edit or splice them together. We'll see. Maybe not. This might just be left in and just leave the recording the way it is because it's real life, right? So, so here we go. What we're going to do is we're going to finish up talking about chapter one of abnormal psych. And chapter one talked a lot about the history and how we look at abnormality in general and abnormal behavior. And then the second part was all about research. So we kind of got stuck halfway through research. We'll start here. So if we're going to develop a good research project, Right? One of the things that we need to do is we need to have a couple different uh, pieces that need to be included. Number one, we need to develop an operational definition. See, when we talk about abnormal behavior, when we talk about psychological you know, behavior, uh, mental processes, there's no direct way to measure that. So how would you measure burnout? Well, you've got to find a way to measure it, right? Because a burnout is a feeling. So how do we measure a feeling? Well. Maybe behaviorally, we monitor someone's behavior. Maybe we do it by having a test or an, uh, you know, that asks certain questions and we go that way. But we've got to develop a, an operational definition, a way to measure what it is we're looking at. Number two, we have to have a random sample. In other words, we can't just take a sample, just take the first 20 people that walk in the classroom because the first 20 early arrivers might be different than late arrivers. So everyone, what random assignment means is that everyone in a population, so let's say we're going to look at Pennsylvania, that everyone in Pennsylvania has an equal and fair opportunity to be chosen or not, that it's random. And hopefully, if we do it right, we do random assignment or random sampling from a population, then if the population is 20% female, then our random sample should end up being pretty close to what? 20% female, right? Because that's how it works. And I just picked that out of a, you know, as a variable out of there. So just one of the things to kind of think about. That's what we're talking about, right? That a participant selection is by chance from a larger population. Now, the importance of that is whatever the population is that you start out with and that you randomly select from, that's all you can talk about. In other words, if all we did was look at people in Pennsylvania, then our results only apply to people in Pennsylvania. They may be similar to people in California, but we can't say that because we didn't sample California. Make sense? So you're kinda, you always have to be thinking about that when you do any kind of research. We also have to look at reliability and validity. Any test, any measurement we use needs to be both reliable and needs to be valid. Reliable means the extent to which a measure consistently yields the same results on repeated trials. So what does that mean? That means if I give you a test, right? A test today that measures um, your emotional state. How are you feeling today? Okay. You're feeling okay, okay? So if I give you a test that measures your emotional state and you feel okay today, when I give you a test six months from now, if you're still feeling okay, I should get similar results. It should be reliable from moment to moment. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't change just because you took it once or it shouldn't change if you haven't changed. So it should be reliable. That's what we're talking about. 
One example of reliability that we have to be concerned about when we observe behavior. Let's say that we have two different professors in this class and we're going to grade you based on our observation of how you behave in class. Okay? Well, the other teacher and I need to come to an agreement on what we expect. What are the signs that you're performing well? Right? Just like whenever I give you guys a rubric to grade some kind of assignment, it shows you what, what is the expectation to get an A? What's the expectation to get a B, right? Well, as long as the other professor and I are trained on what to look for, then no matter who grades you, you should end up with the same result. It shouldn't matter. But what if the other person is following their own standards and I'm following mine? Then there's no reliability. Got it? We both rate you, but each one of us comes up with a different grade. Not reliable. Might be valid. Might be a good way to evaluate someone through observation. Might be a valid way, but it's not reliable because the people doing it haven't been trained. Does that kind of make sense? So that's what inner observer reliability means. It says the extent to which different observers or raters agree on the way they categorize or in some way quantify a given behavior. The Rorschach inkblot test, how many people have heard about that? Okay, all you're doing is looking, listening to someone's response at looking at an inkblot. It's a very subjective response, right? You look at the inkblot, you see something completely different than maybe I see. In order to actually rate or grade a Rorschach inkblot test, evaluators have to look at 300 previously graded Rorschachs first to see what the patterns and trends are. There's a book to teach you how to read or interpret the responses in the Rorschach so that no matter who you take the Rorschach test to, like no matter who grades it or scores it, if everyone took the class, if everyone got trained properly, if everyone looked at 300 plus graded evaluations, then you should have a similar outcome. So it's kind of it's funky when you think about that, like you never really think about that. Which psychiatrist do you want to go to? Because this one will label you as this and this one will label you as something else. You want to make sure they're both labeling you the same. Psychological measurement is never as precise as physical measurement. That's one of the things because again, you say you feel okay today and you might feel okay six months from now, but okay is kind of subjective, you know, okay compared to yesterday, okay compared to tomorrow. You know, it's, again, it's never as reliable as we'd like to think it is. So psychological measures only sample a small part of the domain of how a person acts, feels, and thinks we can't ask you questions about everything. So we just have to take a sampling of questions to try to interpret what it is you feel or how you act. Validity is the measurement, um, a measure is valid if it measures what it's supposed to. If I give you a test on depression, does it truly measure depression and not burnout? Is it valid for the purpose? Sometimes people will use psychological testing as employment tools. Is that really its purpose? Is that really a valid use for a psychological test? It may or may not be. If you're dealing with people every day, 
that might be more of a need. You know, if you're dealing in a warehouse, is that really a need? Don't know, right? Validity is difficult to determine psychology as much as uh, what is of interest. So again, you know, what is it? It's really difficult to try to find something valid because again, unless it's been tested and tried and true, we're kind of out there on kind of a, you know, on some shaky ground. We, we look for you know, some kind of consistency. Even two studies on aggression might have labeled aggression differently. Like my perception of somebody's aggressive behavior and your perception might be two different things. So even when we compare research studies, are they talking about the same thing? It's one of the things that we have to kind of think about. And a measure can be reliable, but it might not be valid. Or a measure can be valid, but maybe it's not very reliable. Correlational research. It's another kind of research that your chapter talks about. Correlational research is a descriptive method. With correlational research, an investigator looks at two different variables and sees how they're co-related. So some of this stuff might be from Psych 101. You might have heard of this before. I'm not going to go as much in depth in this class because hopefully you have that good foundation. And I've had most of you in my 101 class, so I know we're good to go. In fact, I've had, I think, almost all of you. I've had you in 101. I haven't. I think you're the only... I've had you in 101. No? Oh, wow. Okay, so two people. I've had you in class before. But not for 101. Okay, but I've had you as a student before. Okay. Well, again, I thought many of you looked familiar. So, correlational research. Let's talk about this, right? A statistical measure of the direction and strength of a relationship between two variables. How are things related? And how strongly are they related? That's what co or correlation means. The correlational coefficient is the rating, it's the score. And it's gonna be a score between negative one through zero to positive one. The closer, here's the way to break this down. Two rules of correlation. Number one, the number, not the sign. Ignore the sign right now, we're just talking the number. The number indicates the strength of the relationship. Closer to one, stronger the relationship. The more related these two things are. The closer to zero, the weaker the relationship. Okay? So that's rule one. Correlational coefficient. Closer to one, stronger the relationship. Closer to zero, weaker the relationship. What about the sign? The sign indicates the type of relationship. The direction of the relationship. Positive correlation means that as one thing is increasing or decreasing, the other thing is going in the same direction. It's increasing. Like if one thing is going up, uh, let's see, uh, population of an area and crime. As population of an area goes up, usually crime goes up, right? They're headed in the same direction. They're correlated. They're co-related in some way. We can't say that population causes crime, but they're related. Right? Negative correlation means that they're headed in opposite directions. As temperature goes up, amount of clothing worn drops. They're headed in opposite directions. So that's all the sign means. A negative 0.87 correlation 
is the same strength as a positive 0.87 correlation. The number's the same, but the direction of how they're related changes. Make sense? So that's like the easiest way to think about that. There are some videos. You'll see video links again in the PowerPoints. You can just click on them and go there. And what is a correlational research? What are we really doing? Well, here's what it is. This is the mathiest this class is going to get. There's always math in every class, especially psych. Here it is. It's a scatter plot. When we do correlational research, all we do is collect data points. So. Let's say, if you have me for Psych 101, you know that there's a correlation, there's a relationship between, ready for this, ice cream cells and the occurrence of rape. When ice cream cells are higher rapes, there's more rapes. When ice cream cells are lower, there's less rapes. Does that mean that ice cream cells cause rapes? No. Does that mean that raping causes ice cream cells? No, there's no cause and effect, but they are related. What are some factors that could be related to ice cream cells and rape? Heat and aggression that comes from the community. What's that now? The heat that you, like the temperature, how hot it is, because you're eating more ice cream, and then you're aggravated because it's hot outside. Okay, so temperature, right? Temperature causes people to eat more ice cream. You know, the hotter that it is, the more we want to cool off, and ice cream helps us do that. Also, temperature, don't we take more risks in the summertime? Think about it. We sleep with our windows open as opposed to them shut, because in the wintertime, it's cold. Do we stay out a little later in the summertime? Here in the, you know, North America? Yes, we do. Do we dress a little bit? Now, again, dress should have nothing to do with sexual assault. But do we take chances with dress in the summertime when, you know, we're all bundled up like Eskimos in the wintertime. In the summertime, we kind of dress a little bit risque. Excuse my terminology, but we do. We've got to be honest with that, right? So what about population? In an area with more population, would they have higher ice cream sales? Yeah, there's Right, there's more people. And is there higher rapes? Yeah, so I can find a relationship between those two factors. If it was a perfect relationship, here's how we would do this. What we do for ice cream cells, you know, for example, is you know, I'll use this chart down here first. We have these little graphs up here. And again, this is a scatter plot. So what do we do? We measure how much ice cream is sold in uh, Gettysburg and how many rapes occurred. How much ice cream is sold in Harrisburg and how many rapes occurred. How much ice cream is sold in Lancaster and how many rapes occurred? How much ice cream is sold in York and how many rapes occurred? And all we do is put those data points on a graph, essentially, and then we look for how compact the data is. The closer together the data, the stronger the relationship and the closer to one. The more spread out the data, the weaker the relationship and the closer to zero. And here's the math part, ready? The number, the correlational coefficient, is nothing more than the slope of a line that could be drawn through the data. Let's say we had a perfect relationship between ice cream cells and rape. Of course, that doesn't exist in real world, but let's just say for sake of argument. That when we go and we start plotting them, we find that every, for every 500 gallons of ice cream sold, one rape occurs. 500 gallons of ice cream is sold, one rape occurs. We plot it. 1,000 gallons of ice cream is sold, two rapes occur. We plot it. 
1,500 gallons of ice cream is sold, three rapes occur, we plot it. 2,000 gallons of ice cream is sold, four rapes occur, we plot it. We would end up with a straight line. That's a perfect relationship. That's a one. They're headed in the same direction. As ice cream sales go up, rapes go up. So it's a positive correlation of one. It's perfect. But that's not real life. This chart here, a correlation of 0.57, that's more like real life. Now, I'm not even going to tell you that's the right correlation for this relationship, but I'm just going to say it's more like this, a broader pattern. We get a correlation of 0.57, we feel pretty good about that. That's a, that's a, you know, a moderate correlation. It's not strongest, but hey, this is human beings. That's pretty good. Right? A negative correlation would be, again, temperature and amount of clothing. It's not a perfect relationship. Why isn't it a perfect relationship? Because there's some people who take off clothing no matter how cold it gets. They're nudists. And there's some people who keep on clothing no matter how warm it gets. It could be 90 degrees out, my wife will say, it's cold, and she'll throw on a sweatshirt. I'm like, oh my gosh. We went for a drive recently, right? She's like, how's it outside? I said, it's nice. I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt. She put on jeans and a long shirt. We got in the car. We drove five minutes down the road. She's like, it's so stinking hot. I'm like, you didn't listen to me. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. So then she cranked on the air and I froze. <laughs> right? But what I'm trying to get at is, again, there's no perfect relationship. Here is maybe a correlation for amount of clothing worn and temperature. Notice it's a negative correlation. The scatter plot's headed in a different direction. As temperature goes up, generally, amount of clothing goes down. As temperature is lower, amount of clothing is more. So again, it's just an example. This is no relationship whatsoever. This is a zero correlation, this last picture. And so a zero correlation means it doesn't matter. They're not related in any way, shape, or form. And when we go and plot them, can you put a straight line through there in any way? No, it's just data points all over the chart. So again, this is correlational research. All right? Correlational research can tell researchers something about the strength and direction of a relationship, but it never demonstrates causation. I know I've said that four times, but it's really important to know that. Most human research is correlational. We can't say what caused what, but we can say they're related in some way. Because again, all we're doing is recording. I'm not making ice cream cells, nor am I making rapes occur. I'm just reporting what exists. So I'm not manipulating or varying anything. So there's so many unknowns that are in there we can't say cause and effect, but we can say whether they're related or not. Another research method is an experiment. Now, experiments are awesome. We can control a lot of different factors. We can hone in on one or two variables that we really want to look at, control everything else. Tough to do in real life. We can do that more with animals than we can with people, but we can use experiments. And Experimental research is a research method in which conditions are manipulated in order to test the effects of the manipulation. All experimental research needs to have, again, random assignment, and we need to start out with two groups. One group is going to be the experimental group. The experimental group is the one that we're going to do something to, we're going to experiment with. The other group is the control group. 
The control group is the group we're going to keep exactly the same. We're not going to do anything to. I'm going to use a medication trial because that's the easiest one to think about. So I want to test a med. I want to see if my medication reduces depression. Okay? So I get a bunch of depressed people. And what I do is I break them into two groups. I randomly assign them. You know, I don't just pick the first 10 that show up in my office. I randomly assign Everyone has an equal chance of being in either group. I break them into two groups. One group I'm not going to give my med to. I'm not going to do anything to. I'm just going to let them, I guess, be depressed. See how now we're already in an unethical area. Because now I know someone who needs treatment and I'm not giving them treatment. It's unethical. So that's why we get, it's difficult to do experiments, true experiments sometimes. But let's say that one group, the control group of depressed people, I'm not going to treat at all. The other group of depressed people, I'm going to give my med to. What is the independent variable? What is it that I, the experimenter, I, independent I, what is it that I am manipulating? What do you think? There you go. So I'm giving medication or not giving medication. That's what I'm doing, right? So whether you get the med or not is the independent variable. I did it based on which group you're in. What's the dependent variable? What's the thing I'm measuring to see if it changes? Your depression gets better you don't, you're not as depressed anymore. There you go, right? So depression is what I'm measuring. I'm measuring depression. It's the dependent variable. The result of that measurement should depend on which condition you're in. In the control group, we would expect no change. In the experimental group, we expect some change. So in a simple experiment, this is how we would do it. Make sense? Questions? One of the things that we look for is a significant difference, not just a difference by chance. Okay, this group that got the med, they were a little bit happier, a little less depressed, but not, I mean, hell, just a week going by could make them that way. The depression could lift a little bit. So it's not significant enough to say that it was the med that caused it, right? Says here in psychological studies, a probability chance finding a 5 of 100 times, or probability of 0.05, or lower is acceptable. In other words, you find this outcome and you say, what's the chances? Well, it's less than 5 out of 100 that this result could show up. Then we feel pretty confident about that, that it's not by chance. We don't even go 50-50. We go 95%. And 95% of the cases cannot be explained by chance. That's what it's saying. Five of them may be by chance, but 20, so it's the margin of error, like a little wiggle room. Think of it that way. Another thing that we can do, especially in medication trials, is we can do what's called a placebo test. A placebo is a fake uh, condition, like maybe it's a sugar pill I give you. The sugar pill does nothing for depression, but I give it to you so that maybe this third group, this placebo group, maybe just the idea of taking a med makes them feel better. All right? 
So I'm going to do this real quick graph right up here, right? So let's do our little medication trial, okay? We start out with all the groups are depressed. So all groups are equal. We're going to have three groups in this one, right? So they're all equal, about equal in their level of depression to begin with. Agree? The first one is the control group. I do the experiment and the control group is about the same. Their level of depression didn't really change. All right? I have the experimental group, that's group two, and when I go and I test their depression later, I find that their depression is down by half. So it's half of what it was. And I get all rejoiced, like, yay, my med is awesome, it kicks ass, right? Reduces depression, I'm all excited. But we've got our third group. We wanna make sure that it's the med and not just the idea of the med. So our third group is our placebo group. And let's just say, placebo. Let's just say, for sake of argument, right, that our placebo group they have a reduction in depression, too, of about 25%. So just the idea of the med, of taking a med to help their depression, reduces their depression by 25%. Taking the med reduced their depression by 50%, and not taking the med at all kept the depression where it was. How effective is my med? It's pretty good, but it's only really maybe 25. Because the other 25 can be explained by just taking a pill alone, any random pill. So my med helps, but really the difference that it helps is only right here. This amount right here is the only difference. Does that make sense? I can't say this whole amount, because this part can be explained by placebo. But this part here, haha, this is more than placebo more than just the idea of taking the med. The med works. So again, that's why we might do three groups instead of just two. Any questions? All right. Sometimes we don't want people to know what condition they're in. We might do a single blind study. Single blind study, either the experimenter or the participants don't know which group they're in. So maybe the experimenter doesn't know. I don't know if you're in the control group or the experimental group, but when you walk up every day, I give you a pill, you know which one you're in. Because like maybe you're in the control group, you never come up and I don't ever give you a pill. You come up every day, I give you a pill. I'm the experimenter, I don't know who's getting what. I just walk in later on. So you know. Well, sometimes we don't want the person to know. Because maybe just the idea, maybe you want to throw the, throw the results, you really like me. And so you're like, oh, I'm going to act like I'm happier even though I'm not really. It can happen, right? Yeah. So then we might do what's called a double blind design. And in a double blind, neither the, neither the participants nor the experimenter know. So you're in a week-long med trial. Your med is mixed in with your food. You don't know it. It's being done in the kitchen. And I don't know who gets the med and who doesn't, because I'm the experimenter, I walk in later. So neither one of them know who gets the med and who doesn't, and I don't know, double blind. So again, try to take away any kind of bias that might show up. 
The last one, the last slide is this one, and then we're going to move on to chapter two. So chapter summary, abnormal behavior. To summarize everything we've talked about in chapter one, abnormal behavior depends on cultural inappropriateness, subjective distress, and some kind of psychological disability. It's more than just odd behavior. It's got to cause problems for the person. Then abnormal behavior is on a continuum, and that continuum actually can shift a little bit based on social norms or expectations. And psychological disorders are identifiable syndromes that affect a large portion of the population. You know, the number of people, excuse me, the number of people predicted to suffer from um, dementia, uh, Alzheimer's dementia, by the year 2050 is about 14 million million people. Now there's about 330 million people in the United States, so that's still a small portion, but 14 million is not just one or two. That's a lot of people. So it affects substantial portions of the population. And finally, there are various research designs used that we can scientifically study abnormal behavior. So that's chapter one. Any questions? All right, for those of you at home, thanks for listening.